Our scripture reading today comes from the gospel we call Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, and I'm reading from the Common English Bible. It is written, At that time, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River so that John would baptize him. John tried to stop him and said, I need to be baptized by you, yet you come to me? Jesus answered, Allow me to be baptized now. This is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So John agreed to baptize Jesus. When Jesus was baptized, he immediately came up out of the water. Heaven was opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God coming down like a dove and resting on him. A voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I dearly love. I find happiness in him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we, uh, we have a new series. We started last week called Pursuit. Pursuit, it's an active word. It's not, a, it's not a word that you just say without thinking of getting up and moving. It has purpose behind it. And what a good time of year. How many of you made a New Year's resolution? One, two, three. And how many of you three are still keeping your resolution? One, two, maybe-ish. Okay, I think we can relate. I think everyone else who made a resolution just is trying to forget that they made one since they're not following it. I'm just going to take it that way. Resolutions, they're, they're good for us. It's a turning of a page. It's a new opportunity. And it's a good time for us to think about what we're doing, what we're doing with life, what we're doing, what we pursue, what life is all about, what has meaning, how we spend our time, how we spend our focus. And so pursuit, I thought, was appropriate to begin the year out. Sometimes we can become complacent in our faith, and we can forget that we don't just arrive. Sometimes we think, well, I've, I've been baptized, and I go to church, so I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, and that is missing the point completely. This is supposed to be a pursuit, a wild, reckless, abandoned pursuit of God in everything that we do and God's will for your life. And sometimes it just becomes a, a resolution or an item on a checklist, and, and I, can, I can understand that. Last week, we talked about revelation because you've got to notice God. So we told the story of the three magi, or we say three, the magi from the east that came and they noticed the star that probably anyone could have noticed if they bothered to look up, yet no one did. And they show up and they're, they're witnesses to something new happening with God that the people of God seem to be rather clueless about. And it can be that way with us. We can wonder, God, why aren't you leading me? And God's like, hello, look up. I'm right here. I've been trying to tell you. Whatever it is I've been trying to tell you, we just sometimes get distracted. Amen? Am I the only one? Okay, just making sure. So this week, the word is submission. And everyone says, yay, submission. We love the word submission. Amen? Oh, well, see, everyone in first service was honest. No one said a word. They just laughed awkwardly. Yeah, sure, submission. I heard some amens in here, and I hope that your spouse or your friends heard it, and they can come to you and say, let's practice submission, yes? Submit the word in our Greek text as we find it. And when Paul talks about it, when James talks about it, among others, is upotasso. Can you say upotasso? What a fun word. Drop that in a sentence this week just for fun. 
Upotasso is, is two words. Upo, which means under, and tasso, which means to place in order. So if you put them together, you're placing something under, and you're ordering it as such. So to submit to something is placing yourself below it. Okay? Now, my testimony, my, my faith calling involves a little bit of submission. But I have to say, honestly, it took me a long time and a lot of kicking and screaming and dragging my feet. And Lauren can attest, it was a bit of a journey. And it was a lot of me resisting. I wanted to phrase it that it was me, are you sure, God? And someone had to say to me in 2008, does God have to hit you over the head with a hammer to get you to see what you're supposed to be doing? Someone I had just met lays this on me, and I'm starting to understand that she could see a lot more clearly than I could. I was going to be a firefighter, and I'd done all the training, and I'd spent the two years getting on lists and, and doing everything you're supposed to do, and I was at the top of a few lists just waiting on a call. And then I got a call, but it wasn't from a fire department. It was from God making it very clear, haunting me in a movie, no less, that I needed to get out of the boat. It was the scene where Peter had taken Jesus across. He'd just met him, and Jesus got out of the boat, and there was this moment where they looked back at Peter like, are you getting out of the boat? Are you coming? And Peter has this moment where he doesn't know, and it stuck with me. And I realized God's asking me to get out of the boat, and I felt very strongly God wanted me to move, to relocate, to go somewhere else. And so I said something to Lauren, and Lauren was like, am I included in this trip? And I'm like, yes, you're included in the trip, but where are we willing to go? What are we willing to give up to take this leap? And so through extending myself to all the pastor friends I know and saying, hey, I'm willing to move. I don't know what that means to you, but I'm willing to move. I'm looking for something. God's calling me. And then I got invited to apply for a youth ministry position, which paid less than we could afford to even live on. But the door opened, and you know my story. I go through the door. I showed up. And the woman says, it's God have to beat you over the head with a hammer. So I said yes to the interview. So I showed up at the interview thinking in my head and all of my genius that I would be a firefighter. And then on the two out of every three days I was off, I could do youth ministry on the side. And they said, no, no, no. You're going to be a youth minister and you will not be a firefighter if you take this job. We want a five-year commitment. So then I knew that they couldn't offer me what I really wanted. So in the midst of the interview, I'm thinking to myself, well, I can just get up and leave now because this isn't happening. Or I can just say exactly what I'm thinking and not feel like I'm trying to impress anybody and just, get, just finish the interview, which is what I did. And so when they called me two days later and wanted to meet Lauren and I and offered us the job, they said, we know you can't, we don't want to offer you this amount, we want to offer you this amount. Now, they didn't know that two days prior, Lauren and I had a conversation and said, we can't live on this amount. We really want to be here, but the absolute necessity is here, the exact dollar amount that they said, we want to raise you up to that. Um, without knowing we had talked about it, which was pretty clear to us. We were going to Franklin. There were some tears. Moving's hard. We went. I had to submit. And it's through that process that God started calling me into pastoral ministry. And believe me, I tried every other thing I could because submitting's hard. It's no easier for me or anyone else. Submitting is hard. I want to be on top. Right? Can you identify with that? Ephesians 5 we're going to talk about the word submit, how it is supposed to be understood, because it often gets misused. Paul talks about submission. Now, he's addressing the whole church. You all are to submit to one another. Christ submits to God. Christ submitted to you on the cross. You are submit to each other, and you're to submit to God. And so then he goes into a list of different people, men and women, submit to each other, young and old, submit to each other. The life of the church is about submission. Sometimes, 
What it, what it doesn't say is that we demand others to submit to us. And sometimes we use that word in that way. Paul is saying, I submit myself to you and to you and to you and to you. I place myself under you. That's on me. I have no expectation of you to submit to me. That's not what Paul is saying. So whether you're in a household and it's a spouse-on-spouse relationship here, no one is demanding to submit to the other. You both submit to each other. He says it in different ways. Some are to submit to each other. Some are to be like Christ to one another, who was the ultimate submission example. So it doesn't matter if we're men or women or old or married or singled or, or young, correct? We submit to each other, amen? doesn't matter if we vote in different political parties. We submit to each other, amen? It doesn't matter if we have a difference of opinion on a non-essential matter of the Christian faith. We submit to one another. Why? You might be asking. Because Christ submitted to the church upon the cross. That's what Christ did. We're going to talk about that. If Christ submits to us, then we must submit to Christ. And who is Christ? Where's the body of Christ? You all. So this is how Paul communicated the way of the kingdom. Now James also uses the word submit, but he talks about submitting to God. He says, if you submit to God, evil will flee from your presence. Now, it makes sense if you think of it. If we submit to God, if we place ourselves under God, we recognize that God is God and we are not. If we submit ourselves to each other and realize that we're not God to anyone else, that we serve others, if we're in these kinds of relationships, it kind of weakens our likelihood of committing any sort of evil, correct? If we're in right relationship with God and each other, that pretty much leaves us nowhere to go but to do the right thing. James talks about submission. So to pursue God's will, we have to see it to be revealed to us, but then we must submit to it. And this is hard. So let's look at our reading. John the Baptist. Now, he's proclaiming the imminent arrival of the kingdom of God. That was his message. That's what he's been shouting out. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe this good news. So he believes this is going to come through the Messiah, God's king. Now, whether he ever knew it was his second cousin, we don't really know for sure. But did you know Jesus and John were second cousins? Because John's mother, Mary, and, or John's mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mother, Mary, were cousins. They had met a few years prior. They knew the relationship. Do you ever think they got together at family reunions and knew the relationship they had in this way? I mean, Joseph and Mary knew. Elizabeth and Zechariah knew. You don't think they ever talked about it? Son, we need to have a talk. Tell you a little bit about what you're here to do. At some point, it had to have been. John knew his purpose, and he was anticipating Jesus, and when he saw Jesus, he knew who he was. He proclaimed the kingdom. John was kind of a weird dude. Picture John. Let me describe him. He lives in the wilderness. He eats bugs. He wears camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. Is this the guy you're inviting over for dinner? It's the guy we're staying away from or walking on the other side of the street and just maybe trying not to look at him. Well, John was not one that you could ignore. John proclaimed the kingdom. Now, when he's proclaiming the kingdom, the reason he's out in the middle of nowhere is because in the middle of somewhere, in the middle of Jerusalem, 
is the politically corrupt religion that it had become. So this is one kingdom. John represents another kingdom. So he stayed away from the kingdom and wasn't involved and yet proclaimed the coming of a new one. And he waited for Christ. He submitted to what he knew was to happen. And so he shouted out. He shone a light on things that needed to be revealed. He called out people for making themselves richer while being at the detriment of the poor. He called out those that were so corrupt, like the king who married his brother's wife. He called it out. He said it. He voiced it. He turned the light on. Now, it wasn't that anyone didn't know this was happening, but John refused to let it remain hidden and ignored. He shined the light upon the people, and the people responded, particularly the ones that had been in the shadows and ignored. So he gave voice to what people already knew. He called attention to the fact that the elite were happy and they were happy to ignore the sufferings of everyone else. He offered the knowledge that God forgives. And he didn't say, we need to stand here and make the elite repent. He didn't say that. He said, we need to repent. We are human. We are broken and just as susceptible to corruption as anyone else. We need to repent. And he called people to repentance. He offered the knowledge that God forgives and seeks to be involved with people that are willing to reorient their lives to God's way, to see things differently, to adjust their trajectory in life and goals and ambitions, to turn around from their own path, to seek God's will, or in a word, to submit. Now, John was an incredible impact. People from all over the land of Judea came to see him and enter into the waters to receive a baptism from him. And then his second cousin showed up. And John had expectations for that moment. And then what he expected is not what happened. In Matthew, we find a unique version of this story, a conversation that's not in the other stories. John says, I, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? John's ready to submit to the king. But Jesus says, you need to allow me to submit to you, John. Allow me to be baptized by you. And then he offers those words, to fulfill all righteousness. Now, imagine John was kind of like, what? That is not what I expected. It's caught off guard. And anybody that's reading this story for the first time is going to be caught off guard. Why is Jesus receiving a baptism in the first place, but from, from a human being? So he says to fulfill all righteousness, because that explains it, right? John said, oh yeah, right, I remember now. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. John didn't quite understand. But what we can understand, the way that the writer has presented, he's given us a clue. All the writers gave us a clue. Because when Jesus is baptized, what happens? Spirit comes down in the form of a dove, like a dove. And then words are spoken, depending on which gospel, something along the lines of, this is my son, with whom I'm well pleased. So let's read Isaiah 42. And I want you to hear the beginning of this. Here is my servant, the one I uphold, my chosen, who brings me delight. I've put my spirit upon him. See, this is all Matthew had to do to bring the minds of the readers to this. Just give those first few lines. It continues, he will bring justice to the nations. He won't cry out or shout aloud or make his voice heard in public. What a strange king. He won't break a bruised reed, which is what they used to write. He won't extinguish a faint wick, which is what lit the whole house. But he will surely bring justice 
He won't be extinguished or broken until he has established justice in the land. The coastlands, the lands outside of Israel, await his teaching. God the Lord says, the one who created the heavens, the one who stretched them out, the one who spread out the earth and its offspring, the one who gave breath to its people and life to those who walk on it, I, the Lord, have called you for a good reason. I will grasp your hand and guard you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the darkness, to open blind eyes, to lead the prisoners from prison and those who sit in darkness from the dungeon. I am the Lord, that is my name. I don't hand out my glory to others or my praise to idols. The things announced in the past, look, they've already happened, but I'm declaring new things. Before they even appear, I tell you about them. So the baptism is about that. So something happened there. And picture the waters. Jesus would have done something like this. A lot of them were baptized like this. They would kneel in the water. wouldn't even be underneath the water. And they'd scoop up and drop the water. as a common way that they would wash. And above the waters is the Spirit hovering. And the God of the heavens ready to speak and begin something new. Does this sound familiar? That sounds like Genesis. In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And darkness hovered over the deep. The Spirit, the breath, the wind of the Lord was upon the waters. And then God spoke the word. Whoo! Whoo! This is big. There's a lot happening here. So, what's it mean? What, is, what does it mean? Well, the way he uses the word fulfills, fulfilling all righteousness, tells us that Jesus chose to submit and be a servant to his calling. His calling is to be Messiah. Messiah means God's anointed king, anointed one. He was already regarded as a Messiah at birth, but it seems that his work didn't begin until he entered the waters of the Jordan River that day. He entered the same water as the people to assume the same reality as the people, to enter into the same covenant as the people. The sin of the world, as we often call it, needed to be redeemed. And that word is it's financial. Sin is a credit. We owe. We owe. We have a debt. And redemption is the paying of the debt. So the sin of the world, let's talk about this because this is a very churchy word. Sin of the world sounds very dark and ominous. Here's the sin of the world. To reject the will of God is the sin of the world. To reject the ordering of all things as God would order them is the sin of the world. To reject God as our true king, to reject the idea that we submit to one another, to reject the idea that we have been charged to take care of creation in Genesis, to reject the idea that we are to actively participate in the ongoing creative work of all things. To reject these is where you find sin. We are so easily swayed into this deception. I am. Maybe you are too. When we make decisions for our benefit at the detriment of creation or somebody else. When we place ourselves over others, we're choosing sin. When we talk of other people like they are simply objects, we are rejecting God's will. 
When we demand that others submit to us, we're making ourselves God. And marriage partners, hear that again. When we demand that others submit to us, we are making ourselves God. Jesus came to redeem our rejection. So he had to enter the waters of the rejection. He entered the waters to place the sin and rejection upon his shoulders. At that moment, he is stamped by God as the Messiah with the coming of the Spirit, with the words from heaven. His work has begun. The Spirit is upon him. It confirms him. He's chosen, and it brings God delight that he has submitted to this call. Quite a scene. Jesus submits to the will of God to enter into our dirty water, to go to that cross, to receive all the rejection that we could invent and muster and perfect and execute him with. And he would receive it all without a word of retaliation. He didn't take a stand against us. He could have. Jesus never took a stand against people, ever. Ever. He took a stand against a system that people were driven by, but it was always in an effort to save the people. When we acknowledge that our way is not God's way, even if we stamp it with Christian. The matter is simple. Do we submit to God and God alone? Do we submit to others wholly? Do we submit to the greatest commandments to love God and love others as we love ourselves? Do we accept the rejection that we receive and merely reflect forgiveness in response? Do we take on the hatred and reflect love alone? like Christ did. We're going to remember our baptism today. This is why this is here. Today is the Sunday we remember Jesus' baptism, and we made a vow in our baptism to submit to the church and to God, to become the very body of Jesus Christ, to continue the work that he began that day in the river. We actually said the words, I do. We said, I do to the church to give up our own autonomous existence, our independent existence, for the sake of entering into a new family with sisters and brothers, to belong to the one family that spans time and space with one parent, God, to join in to this ancient and beautiful and messy and divisive and stubborn and life-giving church. Isn't it wonderful? Is it hard? If you're paying attention, when you were asked at your baptism, if you were, you were asked to renounce the spiritual forces of wickedness and evil, that if you would repent of your rejection of God, and to that you responded, I do. When you were asked if you accepted the freedom and the power God gives us to resist evil and justice and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves, you said, When asked if we confess Jesus Christ as our Savior, to put our whole trust in his love and grace and promise to submit to him as Lord in union with the church, which Christ has opened to every person, we said, I do. So perhaps you found yourself off the path, if maybe just a little. Or perhaps you've been journeying in such a way that it was more about you or your group than it was about all of creation and all people. Or perhaps you've looked to other people to be your ruler and to dictate your actions. Or maybe you're asking people to look to you 
Perhaps you've been motivated by your own self-interest or your own earthly family's self-interest. Perhaps you have simply forgotten to make the pursuit of God's will your sole purpose, your number one priority. And perhaps all the above. So we're going to come and remember our baptism. Now, it's really important in the Methodist church, we only baptize once, ever, because when you say, I do, who are you saying I do to? And God is saying, I do to you, yes? Can you ever break that relationship? Can you reject it and wander away? Sure. Did God ever stop honoring the relationship? No. So we don't need to rebaptize. We remember. And so we work very hard to not get anything close to what a baptism looks like because we want to emphasize God has always been there. You've never needed a rebaptism. And so you're going to dip your finger in the water. If you have been baptized, you can dip your finger in the water. And some people draw a cross on their head, whatever you feel led to do. But we renew our vows together from the same bit of water as a sign of the inward grace of God. We live a life of submission to both God and one another and remember a higher calling. So we're going to enter into this time of prayer in a moment. And then we're going to sing a song, Great Are You, Lord, as a time when we can come and remember our baptism together. And you just come as you feel led. If you've been baptized, then dip. If you never have been baptized, then and if you want to receive it, there are rocks in the water, and I invite you to take a rock and to hold it up and let others know that you wish to be baptized. And then we'll talk afterward, and we're going to arrange how to make that a formal celebration in the midst of our spirit and you know, committee-based existence of the church. We're going to do it where we can plan and prepare and do it together. And so take the rock, hold it up, and then if you see someone hold a rock, come and stand with them and pray for them and love on them and wrap your arms around them and celebrate with them and encourage them and let them know they've just made a step in a direction that's going to change their life forever. And friends, if you, if you come and you take a rock, come and find me after service. Don't forget that part. We're going to proclaim our submission once again as a group. So come and let us be received by God and let us receive in an act of submission. Mm -hmm.